When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of John Famalero and Denise Huber? John Famalero was born on Long Island, New York on June 10, 1957. His mother was named Anna, and his father was named Angelo. He had an older brother and sister. John's family moved to Orange County, California when he was young. John had difficulty in school as he frequently engaged in disruptive behavior. Growing up, John was considered to be quiet and awkward. He mostly stayed to himself. His mother was very strict with him and his siblings. John's older brother eventually worked as a chiropractor, but that came to an end when he was arrested in 1980 for crimes of a sexual nature. He spent two and a half years in a mental hospital. John studied to be a chiropractor himself, even after his brother's negative experience in that field. He dropped out before taking the exams and tried to become a police officer four separate times in 1983 and 1984, but he did not follow through with the process on any of those occasions. Ultimately, John worked for a number of companies in the house painting business. John dated a number of women as a young adult. Acquaintances of John were amazed and how he was able to date women who were attractive. They thought of John as frail and ugly. John may have had success attracting women, but not with maintaining relationships. In college, John dated a woman who became pregnant. She terminated the pregnancy. After she became pregnant again, she had the child and gave it up for adoption. John felt like a failure because he couldn't raise the child himself. In 1987, John took a trip to New York with a woman he was dating. In their hotel room, he handcuffed her to a metal bar in front of the window and left her there for several hours. He released her upon returning to the room. She was understandably upset, but played along as if the relationship was fine in order to get back to California. After that, she completely cut him off. On one occasion in 1988, John was with another woman that he was dating when he handcuffed her to a bed. He released her after she threatened to report his behavior to the police. The woman was initially very angry with John, but agreed to continue the relationship. In June of 1991, she ended the relationship. 
Now moving to the timeline of the crime. On June 3, 1991, at about 2.30 a.m., a 23-year-old woman named Denise Huber was driving home in her Honda Accord on the Corona Del Mar Freeway in Costa Mesa, California. Denise and a friend of hers had gone to a concert at a restaurant earlier that night. Denise was intoxicated. As she was driving, the right rear tire of her vehicle went flat. She pulled over to the shoulder and activated her hazard lights. At this point, John abducted Denise, probably after he encouraged her to enter his pickup truck. John committed an assault of a sexual nature after handcuffing Denise. He then murdered her by striking her in the head about 31 times with a claw hammer. The police found Denise's vehicle the next day. The battery was dead from the hazard lights being on. A police dog picked up her scent, but lost it 75 feet down the freeway. There were no signs of a struggle or any other evidence of a crime. The police noticed that there were many payphones within close proximity to where Denise's vehicle was parked. There was a motel that was open 24 hours a day nearby, and an emergency call box was on the freeway just a few hundred feet away. The police believed that somebody must have kidnapped Denise close to her vehicle before she had a chance to make it to a phone. The police investigated people who knew Denise, like the friend that she was with that night, but all of them were cleared of any wrongdoing. The case went cold. After John killed Denise, he purchased a freezer and put her body in it. In 1992, John moved to Dewey, Arizona in a stolen rider truck and took the freezer with him. He lived in a house next to where his mother lived. He had the freezer in the back of the truck. The freezer was powered by an extension cord which ran to his mother's house. On July 9, 1994, a couple named Elaine Canalia and Jack Court agreed to buy some paint from John after talking to him at an open-air market in Prescott Valley, Arizona. The couple took their 10-year-old grandson to John's home to pick up the items. A few things about the encounter made the couple suspicious. There was a 24-foot GMC straight truck in the driveway. It was a rider rental truck and had an out-of-state license plate. There were hundreds of paint cans in the backyard. John appeared to be in a rush when loading the items into the couple's truck. The couple's grandson asked John if he could use the bathroom, but John said the water in the house was shut off. When the grandson started playing with a cap gun, John snapped at him, insisting that the neighborhood was a quiet place. As the couple pulled away, John stared at them intensely. The couple eventually reported what they observed to a friend of theirs who was a police officer. The police investigated, believing that perhaps John was running a methamphetamine lab due to the paint cans and the stray truck. They discovered that the rider truck had been stolen six months earlier from Orange County, California, but due to an oversight, the company never reported it stolen. On July 13, the police searched John's property. The good news for John is that they didn't find any drugs. The bad news for John is that they found the freezer containing Denise's body. John returned home at 5.30 p.m. and was immediately arrested. He initially cooperated with the police, but then when they brought up the topic of the freezer, John became frosty and asked for an attorney. The police found additional evidence connecting John to Denise's murder, including a claw hammer with blood on it, a nail puller with blood on it, a receipt for the freezer showing that it was purchased nine days after Denise disappeared, and a number of items belonging to Denise, including her purse, driver's license, credit cards, checkbook, 
shoes, car key, and jacket. Many of the items were covered in blood. The police discovered that John once operated a contracting business out of a storage area in Laguna Hills, California. The police in California found Denise's DNA in that storage unit. John was tried in Orange County, California, and convicted of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to death. Now moving to my analysis. There isn't much question about John's guilt. Clearly, he killed Denise. His defense attorneys didn't even argue that he was not guilty. Rather, they tried to say that he didn't kidnap Denise. Like she went with him voluntarily, and then he killed her in the heat of the moment. His attorneys were simply trying to avoid John being sentenced to death. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Why did John become a killer? His childhood experiences may contain some of the answers. When John was growing up, his mother focused her attention on his older brother. She appeared to live vicariously through John's brother, and she encouraged him to participate in a number of extracurricular activities. She did not treat John the same way. In reality, Anna mistreated all of her children. It was just a matter of degrees, like who was treated worse. John's mother verbally mistreated their father. The children did not understand why their father would not defend himself or why he did not defend them. John spent a lot of time in his grandmother's residence when he was young instead of playing with other children. The bond between John and his grandmother was unusually close, as if John was trying to replace the affection he should have been receiving from his mother. There was this effort to compensate for something that he needed. John's mother, Anna, had a number of strong beliefs and unusual behaviors. She had a restrictive view of how the family should interact with others. She would not let them talk about religion, what was going on with their family, or politics. Even the communication between the siblings was restricted. For example, they were not allowed to talk to each other when riding in a car. When they watched television, they had to sit in specific places and no deviation was permitted. When the children did manage to have a conversation, their mother would listen in. John's mother, Anna, viewed the neighbors and other outsiders as enemies. She would not invite any of them into her house. Neighbors described Anna as frequently panicked about her children. She would yell at the neighbor's children for small infractions, like stepping on her grass. Neighbors said that when they would talk to Anna, she was overpowering, argumentative, and opinionated. Anna had very pronounced religious beliefs, 
she was Roman Catholic and attended Mass frequently, she would pray louder than anyone else in church, which sometimes led to ridicule. Anna and her children were always focused on what was going on during Mass and never interacted with any of the members in the church. Anna appeared to have a number of compulsions. The family house contained excessive quantities of newspapers, magazines, and other items that she didn't need, which were stacked into various piles. Some of those piles were four feet high and made navigating through the house difficult. Anna frequently washed her hands in excess of what was recommended. Anna was particularly obsessed with the topic of sex. She viewed it as disgusting and repulsive. She did not allow her children to learn about it or talk about it. No mention of sex was ever tolerated in the house. She used to watch TV next to her children to make sure they didn't view anything even marginally related to sex. On some nights, Anna would wait outside the rooms of John and his brother and barge in suddenly in an effort to discourage them from masturbating. Apparently, this tactic profoundly frightened them. It probably not only prevented masturbation, but prevented them from sleeping, like they had to wonder when their mother was going to open the door and scare them to death. As their children grew older and developed a natural curiosity about sex, Anna would become hysterical and reprimand them for bringing up the topic, insisting that they would burn in hell forever if they thought about sex. It appears as though this was a common tactic of Anna. Whenever the children violated any type of rule, they were facing eternal damnation. It sounds like Anna was trying to give them a preview of what hell was going to be like by doing her best to impersonate Satan, except she was doing too good of a job. When John was young, he was considered to be quiet and awkward. He was frequently bullied by his classmates in school. He did not have any friends. John was expelled from school in the fourth grade and had to go to a different school. Like his mother, John appeared to have some compulsive behavior. One compulsion involved trying to balance physical contact. For example, if someone touched one of his hands, he would make them touch his other hand. Or if somebody brushed up against his shoulder, he would make sure his other shoulder was touched as well. It was almost like he was trying to maintain symmetry with the contact. He would have this obsession that having one side touched and not the other put him out of balance in some way, and the compulsion would be to make sure the other side had contact. John was described as hyperactive and nervous. He had a twitch in his neck that became worse with stress. Sometimes the twitch would become more pronounced when he was getting ready to go to school, something he dreaded. Later in life, some people found John to be intelligent, articulate, and personable. Other people felt as though he was a bizarre loner who gave off a creepy vibe. It appears as though some people could detect his narcissism and psychopathy, and others could not. He was able to maintain romantic relationships mostly based on his ability to be charming. When considering John's history, what do I think happened in this case? This is just a theory, my opinion. It sounds like John may have had some obsessions and compulsions when he was younger. Some of the behavior may have been due to genetics, but other behavior may have been caused by his experiences. Sometimes when people are brought up in an overly strict religious environment, they develop obsessive compulsive traits. The constant fear about spending eternity in hell is too much pressure on them, mostly because of the eternal and burning parts. They can't handle that much stress. They're constantly worried about the fires of hell. As the stress builds, it leads to obsessive thoughts, which in turn lead to compulsive behaviors. 
These compulsive behaviors temporarily satisfy the obsessions, but they do not eliminate them permanently. The compulsions actually make the obsessions worse in the long run. Over time, John developed a natural interest in sex, but he was never able to explore his desires in a pro-social and safe way. He was never able to examine the topic without harsh judgment. His desires were immediately labeled evil and destructive, something to be feared. As John gave in to his desires over time, he felt dirty and forsaken. Due to these troubling experiences when he was young, John never learned how to regulate his sex drive or how to have a proper romantic relationship. He was relegated to using his charisma to gain romantic partners, but with no ability to empathize, he could not maintain the relationships. In addition, he was unable to resist being forceful with his partners, which drove them away. Ultimately, John decided to take his behavior to a homicidal extreme. Most likely, John had been driving around Orange County for some time looking for a victim when he came across Denise. He saw that she was intoxicated and walking on the shoulder of a freeway at 2.30 in the morning and decided to commit murder. He was no longer going to be restricted by morals. After committing the murder, he was so pleased with himself, he kept Denise's body and her belongings to serve as a reminder of his crime. Now moving to my final thoughts. Fear is an interesting construct in that at a moderate level, it can be useful, but too much or too little can be destructive. John started out with a tremendous fear of hell, which was instilled by his mother. His high level of fear was something he simply could not cope with. At some point, he moved to the other extreme, to a world without fear, anxiety, or regret, to a world where consequences did not matter, and he was empowered to explore his darkest desires. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? Or just a horrible accident? That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags, because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. Slaycation.